Father, as always, I want to thank you for the, the gifts of grace and faith and hope and love that you give. Um, ask for real wisdom right now. I pray that we would not be like the man of James 1. We look into the mirror. We think we get it. We see things and appreciate those things. And then we walk away and act like nothing happened and we forget who we really are in your son, Jesus Christ. Would you please teach us? to get up under the weight of responsibility of what your word is going to teach this morning. Lord, these things are really beyond me and I need your help. And I ask for unexplainable grace and wisdom as we care for each other and as we corporately love you and love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This is a picture of a first century B.C. mask. Uh, Just a little reminder of how the early Greek theater worked and how one person might play several roles, and they would change masks. And the word hypocrisy, uh, hypocritos, literally comes from the Greek culture, theater culture. And one actor might play two or three parts. Uh, They would design the masks to also aid in projecting the voice. You can imagine trying to communicate to people in a 5,000 to 10,000 seat outdoor amphitheater, and they were genius people and actually learned how how to do that. So let's look closely at the text. What I want to do, just for the sake of time, I want to jump straightway in, all right? We read this last Sunday. One quick comment. The opening clause of verse 9, I'll translate literally from Greek, would be this, the love without hypocrisy. And that functions as a kind of thesis statement, and now 30 commands follow under that. In other words, Gordon, what we're saying is, If you really do love without hypocrisy, you do these 30 things. This is how you prove unhypocritical love or to play on the Greek theater. This is how you love with only one face as opposed to being two-faced or hypocritical. All right. So pay attention to a couple things. Uh, I've charted out for you as of last week. The yellow are the participle verbs. Loaded up. This paragraph is loaded with participle verbs. Nine imperatives and two infinitive verbs. So real quick lesson so you get this. A participle verb shows what? Ongoing Ongoing action. Characteristic behaviors. In other words, this is normal Christianity. The ability to abhor, to cling, to give preference, to rejoice, serve, fervent, persevere, be devoted. This is normal Christianity. This is high level stuff. This is normal stuff. For the average believer in Rome, this is what God has called us to. The imperatives, what's an imperative verb? Terry, you know what an imperative command is. Do this. (laughs) It's a command. You're a soldier. It literally is a command. And when when you give a command to a subordinate officer or or person, what does he say to you? Aye, aye, sir. Which means what? What does aye, aye, sir mean? In the Navy, it means I understand and will comply. Yes. My eyes are locking onto your eyes, and I get exactly what you're saying. Yes, sir, it will be done. Absolutely. That's what an imperative verb is about. And an infinitive verb has to do with purpose. There's a reason behind this thing that's really unique. Notice the two infinitives are on rejoicing and weeping. Rejoicing and weeping. What's the purpose for that? Why should a Christian find purpose And being able to cry with someone and laugh with someone. Why do you think? Well, for one, in a culture of persecution, 
there's a lot of heart issues, don't you think? Can you imagine being arrested like Azia Bibi and being separated from your husband and your, your children for about six years? Wouldn't it be nice to have someone to cry with, to laugh with? A man was just released out of a prison in Sudan. A pastor had been arrested, been there for well over a year. And he literally did this with purpose. He, he wept with people. He laughed with people and shared the gospel with ISIS members in a Sudanese prison. It's an amazing story. And they just released this pastor. They just released him. There's purpose in Christianity. Do you know that? We have great purpose in how we love and care for people. All right. So now let's, let's get specific for today. I want you to see this. Um, let me back up here. There we go. All right. Look at this. This, I put it in green. The very first command uh, that's given so that love has only one face is to abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Notice how it's echoed. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know what's going on here? Those are bookends. He begins with the idea of good versus evil. He ends with the idea of good versus evil. From a literary standpoint, those of you who understand writing and communication, what is significant about that? Why would you do that? Reemphasizing that the most important... Absolutely. Absolutely. This stuff gets down to the basics. Will your life and your devotion be about that which is evil or, or that which is good? Which one's it going to be? And he's saying everything in between those two bookends will help us define the pursuit of goodness and not the pursuit of evil. Look at this next picture. Next slide, rather. Let love be without hypocrisy. Talking about love and then abhorring evil, clean to good. And then more comments about love. What is that called? Well, if you know a little bit about Greek writing technique, that's called a chiasmus. It's a chiasmus or chiastic structure. The Greek letter chi, Bruce, it's, it's, it's an X, right? Chi. So scholars call this a chiasm because it's the, chi, it's the X that marks the spot. So when it comes to love, Real love, the love that has one face and the love that is truly family, it has to address the issue of evil. That's where the lines intersect over evil and goodness. And that if you really love and you're loving with one face, you've got to address the problem of evil. If you can't address the problem of evil, love now has two faces. Does this make sense? All right, let's have some fun. I've translated this actually from the Greek. Here's the entire paragraph from Greek, and I'm picking up on what's called Greek syntax or Greek word order. For example, in English, if I'm talking to my friend Matt, and I would say to Matt, Matt, would you like a cup of coffee? Well, that makes perfect sense in English. But in Greek, I can change the word order to communicate anything I like. Matt, cup of coffee, do you want and by the last word being want, I'm putting an emphasis in the sentence saying, I really care about what's important to you. Matt, a cup of coffee do you want? That communicates compassion. Matt, would you like some coffee in a cup? Boy, aren't we practical. <laughs> you want it in your cup, your to-go cup, or would you prefer in your Contigo travel mug? What do you want? I'll help you on that. Let's get practical here. Do you see? In Greek, you can do that. You can make the words in any order you want. 
It's amazing. So if you were to put on Greek ears and hear it the way it was intended to be heard, this is what you get. The love without hypocrisy. Abhor the evil. Cling to the good. The brotherly love to one another. Be devoted. The honor to one another. Be first to lead in giving preference. The diligence, not lagging behind. The spirit fervent, the Lord serving. The hope rejoicing, the tribulation. Persevering. The prayer devoted, the needs of the saints contributing. The hospitality, practicing. Do you understand what's going on? Can you pick up on on meaning that is lost when you move it into English? What do you see? Why is Paul writing this way? What do you pick up on? Rebecca, can you change the AC setting, please? What do you pick up on? This language of the needs of the saints contributing, the hospitality, practicing, the prayers devoted, this kind of construct, what does it tell you? This is what should be done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you see this is a text about action? There's response, right? I remember years ago, uh, Carla, I read a, a satire about the church. And the satire was about a fishing village. And it was known for fishing. And they had all kinds of fish in the water next to the village. And in the village, they had a few, not a lot, a few PhDs on fishing. And these PhDs could go into profound details about monofilament line and about the technical process of binding carbon fibers together and making these really technical rods and these amazing reels of graphite rods. It was brilliant. And the way they could break it down at a molecular level was fascinating about this fishing gear. Marcin's grinning. She knows where this is going. And they had books and they had stories of people actually who caught fish. And there was an occasional picture of somebody with a fish. And it was really neat. And they had books and they would do pamphlets. And eventually they would do an annual fishing conference every year. And they would bring in one of the greatest PhDs on fishing. And, and he would teach about it and talk about fly fishing. And is it like 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock? Is that what it is? You know? Got to get it out in a real smooth, fluid motion, and you do this, you know, and you pull it out some more, and you work it. About tie flying, and as the satire went on, you realized who is he talking about? Church. The church. And that we think the answer to our lives is another Bible study. That's the answer. And if we could just tweak that Greek word just a little bit more. We might go, aha, Eureka, I have found it. Behold, the inside I've been looking for. And guess what? Behaviorally, nothing changes at all. Nothing. We have our little education event. We go home, and it all stays the same. Another Bible study. We have accumulated not hundreds, thousands of hours of sermons, of teaching, of linguistic studies, of practical studies, the latest popular book studies that are out, 
We have, we have done it all. Conferences and behaviorally very little changes. And when you get to Romans 12, 9 to 21, this is one of those situations where you can't stay the same and get this passage because it says it's about a lifestyle change. Absolutely. Look at what it says in 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rather straightforward into English. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The same toward one another be in your mind. Do not be haughty in mind, but with the lowly associate. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never evil for evil pay back. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, with all men be at peace. Never your own take, beloved. This is straight Greek. If you had Greek ears, this is what you would hear. Never your own take, beloved, but leave room for the wrath, or leave room for wrath. For it is written, for I vengeance will repay, says the Lord. But if hungry, enemy yours, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him. In so for doing, coals burning, you will heap on the head of him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome with good evil. That's what you would hear if someone came and read that to you. Now let's walk through a few of these things. Uh, the word abhor is very, very strong, and it means utter hatred. It means to be caught up in the horror, the upset, and the anger of being exposed to evil. All right. The word cling, cling to the good, cling, it's fascinating, kalao, and it means to glue. It means to be stuck together with glue. It's the equivalent in Hebrew comes from Genesis chapter 2 where it says a man will leave his father and mother and be kalao, glued to his wife, and the two shall become one. Paul uses the very same concept in 1 Corinthians 16 when he talks about a man who in local Corinth, on the way home from work, drops by the local uh, temple cult to Diana or any of the other various female deities, goes in, has a sexual experience with a temple prostitute as an act of worship to bring agricultural blessing and fertility on the land and the city and acts like it was just fine. No big deal. It's what you do at Corinth. You want to bless the land, you visit the local temple cult, and you go home to your wife and family. Paul says, no more, no more. Because when you attach yourself, when you cling, kalao, when you glue yourself to a prostitute, you've just brought Jesus into the situation, and you can't do that because your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because the two shall be glued, they shall be one. Abhor the evil. Evil, paneros, paneros, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from paneros. Talking about the Pharisees, you vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you are paneros. You're evil. It means to be wicked. We must hate what is evil, cling like glue to what is good. Good is the beautiful English name for a woman, Agatha. 
agatha. Agathos means that which is good and beneficial and healthy and whole, that which is of intrinsic value. Um, regarding the abhorrence of evil, very quickly, do you remember the temptation story in the garden? Eve, in all her beauty, Adam, and all that is glorious about being a male, brilliant IQs, Adam naming the species, what it would, the cortex it would take to do that is mind-blowing. How smart and how brilliant and how beautiful and how perfect Adam and Eve really were. And while Eve is standing next to a tree, whatever it is, pomegranate, apple, pear tree, we do not know. Whatever it is, the proverbial apple tree, Satan takes the form of a serpent and begins to tempt her. And starts putting poisonous honey in her ear. What's this I hear? God has made a rule to deny you something rightfully yours. And for the moment, Eve is convinced that what the serpent has to say is kind and benevolent. What the serpent has to say is kind and benevolent. And she bites the apple. And then in her act of kindness and benevolence, gives the apple to Adam. If there was an abhorrence of evil in her heart and in Adam's heart, they would understand that there's nothing kind and nothing benevolent about what Satan is about. Nothing. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 21, what benefit are you deriving from the things that you're now ashamed? What benefit are you deriving from the things that you're now ashamed? You're a Christian. You're dead to sin now. Why do you keep going back into the old way of life? What's the benefit? Do you think there's kindness and benevolence and good things in the return for sin and evil? No. What benefit is there? There's no benefit. Then you must learn to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Verse 10. This is beautiful language. The brotherly love to one another be devoted. I'll translate that this. The Philadelphia. Alleluia to one another. Philastorgia. Philadelphia. Philastorgia. Beautiful words based on the concept of love. And they simply mean this, brotherly love and then family love. Philostorgia, it, it's the kind of love that uh, a parent has for their children. Uh, Catherine is a big old 19-year-old and she still gets up in my lap and wants me to rub her back and kiss her cheek and tell her how much I love her. That is philostorgia. That is devoted, intimate family love. That is to be normal and descriptive of the body of Christ, that we love each other in parent-child kinds of ways. We're Philadelphia, where we love each other in brotherly, sisterly kinds of ways. Now, question, my, my dear colleagues in the quest of truth. Why would Paul say the very first descriptor that he chooses to use to describe one-faced love 
Why would he say it's about abhorring evil? Why would he do that? Why is that the first command of what we should avoid? Cling to, glue to what is agathos, good. Hate what is evil, paneros, evil. Why does he say, why does he say that? Wouldn't it, you know, love without hypocrisy means you're, you ha- you're patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love is good. Those kinds of logical things. But instead he goes, no. When love has one face, you hate evil. First thing. Everyone turn to Romans 13 and look at verse 10. And you'll find the answer. Romans 13, 10. Romans 13, 10. Someone answer the question. Why does Paul immediately address the problem of evil when trying to teach us to have one-faced love? Exactly. You can't have it both ways, can you, Frank? Now, based on Romans 13.10, what's the principle? Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the... Isn't that interesting? That when you are willing to keep the law, to do the right thing at the right time, you're actually showing that you love people. Because love does no harm to a neighbor. Love does no harm. Husbands, husbands, if you love your wives with one face you will do them no harm. You will not embrace evil at all. Do you think it hurts a wife when her husband embraces pornography? Do you think? Pornography destroys marriage. It is not loving. It is not loving at all. And it destroys marriages. Wives, do you love your husband with one faith? One face, hate evil. Hate evil. Don't pursue sin. And don't justify it. Because it means love has two faces, Frank. You can't have it both ways, can you? Then this unusual language, look at this. The honor to one another be first to lead in giving preference. Beautiful language. Very technical. By the way, the word honor is Timae, where we get our name Timothy. All right, the honored one. If you have, if love has one face, be first to lead in giving preference. This is what's going on. Remember, we're, when Paul writes these things, we're doing church live. We're doing church for real. We're not, this is not a fishing conference, okay? We're doing it for real. Guess what? What did Jesus say when a man walks into church and he comes in late or he's very poor and wears rough clothing? Where does he sit? In the back, in a footstool, or maybe he sits on the floor, just leans against the wall. What did Jesus say about those kinds of behaviors? When you give the best seats to the people who are best dressed, what did he say about honor-shame seating? He said, you don't do it. Not at all. By the way, when you do the Lord's Supper, and speaking of the Lord's Supper, um, uh, let love, agape, have one face. 
the word agape uh, was, it's actually not a Christian word. It comes out of classical Greek. Classical Greek people used it. It wasn't uniquely Christian uh, when it was in currency at, in, at the day or in the day. But Christians grabbed it and they kind of did a fresh minting of the word and they decided it would be appropriate to use agape as a title for an event called taking the Lord's Supper. And they called it an agape feast, a love feast. Because what happens at the Lord's Supper table is supposed to be about agape love. The unconditional, unfading love of God as revealed through the death of his son Jesus Christ, his broken body and his spilt blood. So when you honor one another and you are first to lead in giving preference, he's saying this, if, if one of the church members who is a slave, meaning they're, they're hired out and they're forced to work longer hours than normal and they come late to the Eucharist, to the agape feast, when they come, the door, come in the door, you get up and you give them your seat. And you say, here, you have my bread. You take my bread. Come on, come on. You're late. Here, sit down, eat. There's bread for you. There's wine for you. There's some table vegetables. Maybe even if it's a wealthy home, there might even be some marmalade and some seasonings besides the basic of salt to eat with. You have my chair. I give you preference. I give you honor. This is what's going on. This is doing church. This is it. Okay. For the sake of time, we need to stop there. So by way of reminder... And just walking through the basics of these things. The hating of evil and the conquering good and the good that we should cling to are bookends. It's very important. If you love, if you're if you love with one face, you hate evil. If you love with two faces, you see evil as being kind and benevolent and struggles we all have and we should be rather understanding of it all, rather tolerant. When the fact is hating evil is one of the best ways you can prove that you love someone. So what about our love-hate relationships? <laughs> Singles, one of the best ways you can show loving relationships is to abhor what is evil. Husbands, love your wives with one face. Wives, love your husbands with one face. Christians, if you really love your church with one face, <clears throat> hate evil. Someone came to me in the 830 service and they were so kind. And they said, Chris, what can we do to help Christ church? How can we encourage you? What can we do? And I told them, what I really need is, is for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I need you to love each other. That's what I need. Do the floors need to be swept and cleaned? Do the kids leave crayons? Sure. Do we, will someone eventually kick a coffee cup during the, the entire service? Probably. You know, stuff happens. Life happens. You know, uh, it's okay. It's not okay if we don't love each other. That is not okay. It's not okay if we don't love God. That is not acceptable. We can deal with the messes and the kids that think that the chairs are a running track lane, by the way, which is what I would do if I were a kid. Nothing like running across church pews. Okay. Hey, that's just stuff. But what really matters is truly loving God with one face and loving each other with one face 
and hating evil. Which means, should we find it abhorrent when there's racism in church? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Racism is abhorrent. We should utterly hate it. Should we find it abhorrent that a man would turn to pornography as though a virtual woman is better than his own wife, God-given wife? That's abhorrent. Or a female doing the same? It's abhorrent. Greed, pride, lying, stealing, cheating, or wanting Christianity your way (laughs) and doing your dead level best to create your God in your image. We We should find these things abhorrent. Christian, if you really love the world with one face, the way God does, for God so loved the world, then we're going to hate evil because there's nothing like a church that claims to know the gospel and claims to have the truth right and can can say the right things and yet is full of evil. And boy, what's the number one tag or the number one descriptor that the lost world gives the average church. They're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And then maybe they say, don't forget the power of stupidity in large numbers or something like that. You know? so. The love without hypocrisy, one face. <coughs> Abhor the evil, stick like glue to the good. The brotherly love to one another Love is children. Love is parent and children. Devoted is a very poor translation. Love is is family. The honor to one another. Be the first to lead in the giving of preference. You are the gifted body of Christ. If you were to take ownership of this and take responsibility for this, we as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers with sons and daughters, how would we then live? What difference should this make in our lives? I think, I think we're, um, I don't know if I would say taught or we just kind of learn it over life, but I think a lot of times we feel like we should be a different person in all different locations where we go, whether it's in our home, with our family, or it's with friends, or it's at work, or it's when you're by yourself. Um, just like all different places we go, we just learn that sometimes we feel like we have to be a different person and love differently where we go. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think that's interesting because I think it's, we're meant to think that God really wills us to want to be the same person in all those areas and love this way in all those areas, but it's so difficult to because I think we feel like we have to love differently and kind of mold where we go so we fit in because we feel like we should always fit in and love this person that way and love this person that way and we act differently around other people depending on where we are. Mm. So this has been good for me to hear this morning because I'm one of those people. I like to mold where I go and fit in where I go. And I want to be this person everywhere. Yeah, and not, one face. And not just mm. mold. Mm. 
she has spoken a deep level of wisdom, uh, and this is called an integrated morality, integrated morality and an integrated personality, uh, because when you, it, it causes great mental stress when you're a hypocrite and you know it, <laughs> and you put on this face in this environment and another one in this environment, and you don't have an integrated sense of self. You know you're a phony, and you've adapted to it. <laughs> and it's a hard way to live life. It is. And she's spoken great wisdom. To integrate love into all aspects is genius. So keep going. Others, what would it be like if we committed to this? I think on the, on the same note, there's a point of being able to admit to yourself Yes. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm a hypocrite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. so yeah. and so that's yeah. uh, I mean I but knowing it isn't an excuse for doing it. Absolutely. And that's a struggle that, you know, yeah. I know I have. Yeah. Thank you, Ed. I stand with Ed. I stood with Guy last Sunday. I'm standing with I'm on this side over here, Guy. We have hypocrites over here. So yeah, you're right. You're right, Ed. Seeing and admitting it is a critical step. Absolutely. Someone else. Why does this matter? Chris, I would say there's a challenge to this. Because if you really abhor evil, then you're going to recognize that um, a brother or sister uh, or even a lost person outside the body is actually being damaged by the evil. So... But if you go and tell someone who's playing on the train tracks, who really likes playing on the train tracks, that they shouldn't be on the train tracks, you become the bad guy. And people don't want to hear it. And in, in our culture today, like, people don't want you helping them with their problems. I mean, I understand it. it it's hard when somebody comes to you and says something that's difficult. Uh, but our culture, you know, Case in point, uh, Mary made a post on Facebook about Southern heritage, and it was connected to uh, these people that were uh, put in jail for driving around, uh, I think in Georgia, with the, um, you know, the Confederate battle flag, and they ended up at a, a little black child's birthday party, and they pulled guns out and they were threatening it, and it was just the most ludicrous thing, and they got they got serious time for it. And she made a comment about <coughs> hospitality in full view. And then we had some friends, believers, who 
came on and like she really didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal, but it was really a hot button for our friends, and he was just incredibly offended. Hmm. And uh, and so anyway, then another guy comes on, and then I just and I point out it's kind of strange that we have uh, white guys defending themselves. Defending where, like, as opposed to, like, this little boy is going to remember this birthday party for the rest of his life as, you know, mean people showing up, harassing them for no real good reason other than skin color and, um, and mental problems. But, um, so then there's this whole log in the eye and the splinter in the eye thing that we, you know, people come up with defensive things about this. And even in the church, there's just it's just not okay to, I mean, oh, so I abhor evil, so my best thing is to go into the prayer closet quietly and pray for the sake of the person. And I agree that that's part of it, but then there's also a part of pointing out what's wrong and what's bad, and, and we're so sensitive and so defensive that there's, this is nearly impossible. Mm. And you know what, guy, you're onto something. And yet, when we have the esteem of Christ and we stop deriving esteem from each other, then we can do the right thing and live with the consequences. You know? Which are hard. Right. And, and because in Jesus himself modeled for us that my life is set on the following path. I will do what I see the Father doing and I will say what I've heard the Father say, period. That's it. And that is the true esteem of Christ. So, absolutely. I think it's equally important to pray for a heart that's willing to be shaped and molded when mm-hmm. someone does confront you yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I personally am very grateful that I have people in my life that will call me out whenever I'm, you know, yeah. being a hypocrite. And Laura does it all the time for me. And she's, and <laughs> that's why God gives us wives. Yeah. She's right. Like, she's 100% right. And I. It's like, it, like, she does it in a way that, like, it convicts me, though. I'm like, you're right, I'm sorry. Yeah. But, like, that's, not everybody has that. And it is hard to do that, you know, with the right words and in love. Yeah. And also to, you know, prepare yourself to receive something like that. Yeah, agree, agree. That's good, Matt. Yeah, yeah. I get the principle about pouring evil leads to good. That makes Why?
wrong to my kids, but I'm not that same exact person when I'm relating to other people. Sometimes I'm a daughter. Right, right. So I just, I just think that there's... It's so tempting. It's, it's just so tempting to do this easy thing and say any time that we're different with other people, we're being a hypocrite. Okay. Okay, this is good. This is, this is called a teachable moment. Are you ready? 9 to, 9 to 21 is a single paragraph in Greek. I broke it up and gave you two paragraphs. Why? What do you notice? Who's who and what's what in the first block and who's who and what's what in the second block? Let me make it easy. Exactly. You caught it, Frank. The first block is about us, isn't it? This is internal church matters. What's the second block? Big picture, it's external matters. However, there are some internal concepts. But for example, Andrew's onto something. Look at this. As far as possible, as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sure, I do all things. I'm going to be patient and work with people. What about this one? Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Sure, that's a recapping of what Paul said in other places, like she read. But when it comes to the abhorrence of evil... And having one face that is unquestionably the discipline of every one of us inside as body members of Christ. Always. We never take a break from that. Never. But she's right. There are sensitivities and conventions that we engage when you're, you're doing missions out and about in this big old bad world. So, Colby. One of the things that we tend to do is we find an instrument that we that feels comfortable in our hands and we want to wield it. And Christianity requires masculinity. It re- requires femininity. It requires us to be nimble. Um, and Christianity in those aspects isn't clumsy. The, the label we get from the world of being hypocrites, of being holier than thou, of being Jesus freaks, of being Bible thumpers, whatever the world accuses us of is when we're being clumsy. Jesus was never clumsy. Peter was clumsy. You could even argue that at times Paul was clumsy. But Jesus wants us to be nimble in our Christianity. And, and that descriptor means that we will have to have an anchor and yet be able to talk with people, like Andrew is mentioning, in ways that the truth is, is so evident and our own self-condemnation is... Isn't ignored, mm-hmm. and so I, I guess the biggest point is Christianity is supposed to be nimble. Yeah, and Jesus said, "I want you to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, and know how to move on that spectrum." Absolutely. Let's, Matt, go ahead. Well, it's just funny. Andrew kind of touched on something that I deal with all the time in my job. So I don't know if everybody knows this, but I sell medical equipment. So whenever I'm talking to a doctor or a nurse or 
a financial person at a hospital, the conversations that I'm having with all of those people are different, but it's all under the same umbrella and it's all going really towards the same goal. I'm just hitting on the things that are more important to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's not that my message in in everything that I'm saying is hypocritical or like, you know, yes, yes. different, but how I say it and, and what I'm highlighting is different as it applies to the person I'm talking to. Gotcha, which I, I wanna get us back on track. We're, we're veering here, which is all true, but that applies to the second paragraph. Makes sense? That's going to drop way down there to around, you know, uh, like verse 18 or so. Let's, let's, let's hone it back in. Here's the better question. Based on what Ed has shared, what is Ed going to do when he gets home today that will set him apart as being a one-faced man? That's the question. Does that make sense? What's Ed, is, is Ed going to look in the mirror, and we are all Eds, okay? <laughs> We Eds, are we going to look in the mirror and go, yeah, oh, oh, I got it. Good, good word, Pastor. Yep, yep, yep. And then when he goes home, he walks away from the mirror and forgets who he is. That's the question. Okay. What's he going to do when he gets home this afternoon after lunch? And by the way, the same thing applies to Andrea and Jan and Frank and me and Lisa and you and Gayla. That's the issue here, that if we're going to love with one face, we're going to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And in so doing, we literally love like brothers and sisters and parents and children and children and parents. And this is how we give honor to each other. This is how we actually do it. Make sense? This is an internal concept. So let's shift a little bit. I want, I want to hear from some of the guys. You ready? We're going live. Real life is happening now at Christ Church. I want you guys to tell me what's at least one thing you can do. You know, you know based on your years of marriage or months of marriage, that if you did this, your wife would say, you love me with one face. What are some things some men here could do? Guys, speak up. You first. To love your wives with one face. What would it be? Keep my promises in a timely manner. Keep my promises in a timely manner. That's great. Loving with one face. Guy, what'd you say? Uh, did he say guy or guys? I'm sorry. <laughs> Keep going. What's another thing, men? What can you do that you know? If you do this, your wife is going to say, hey, you're loving me with one face. Thank you. Just be honest. Be on Thank you. Be honest. Yes. I think that's really big, Caleb. Thank you for saying it. Let's talk. Let's have an honest conversation. When you do that, you love me with one face. Exactly. What else? Show honor. Show honor, respect, absolutely. How is it that we can give some chick we don't even know, and if we knew her, we'd probably hate her guts. I'm exaggerating. Bear with my rhetoric. And, but we'll get the door for her and treat her with such honor and then come home and say some of the most cutting and cruel things to our wives. What else can we do to show honor, one face love to our wives? Man, what else? Pursue my wife and ask her to do other things in my life. Thank you. Thank you. What else? Be faithful. What's that? Be faithful. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? I'm a great man. Gratefulness. Someone said, Ed, yes, Frank? Always remain fascinated with her. Yeah, yeah. Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5. She's exciting, isn't she? She's special. 
One more. Men, what do we do? Honesty. One face left. Honesty? Honesty? Yes, that's so important, Jesus, so important. Ladies, what can you do to show one face love to your husbands? Be content. Be content. Super, absolutely. Speak well of him, whatever you come through. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Support him and treat him with respect. Mm-hmm. Support him and treat him with respect. Support him, treat him with, like he's a Timothy. To me, respect, honor, absolutely. Absolutely, what else? He is very good. Yes, yes, yes. Appreciate him, absolutely, yeah. Kayla. That is so good. Yeah. Good, someone else. Ladies, what can you do to show one face love? Listen well when he speaks. Listen well, yeah, yeah. This is good. This is good. Hmm? Appreciation. Appreciation, yeah. I know some of you guys are working 50, 60, 70 hours and beyond at times. And beyond. I know it's hard. Ladies, what, what's another thing you can do to have one face love with your husband? Trust his guidance and his choices for our family. Yeah, yeah. God can even speak through a husband, right? He doesn't just speak through the wife. <laughs> That's back to the honesty thing, Jan. Thank you. You're just being honest right now. Yes, she's just being honest. So, <laughs> Did you know all these things that we've shared, and this is, man, this is some good counsel, applies to all relationships. Do you know that? Yeah. It applies to all of us. So. Now we have some big decisions right now. We can walk away from today and act like nothing happened. <coughs> And we can be the, the man of James 1 and look in the mirror, be fascinated at what we see, and then walk away and act like nothing happened. Nothing at all. Or we can say, no, I have some serious responsibilities here, and I commit to these things. To love with one face. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Uh, Lord, so much wisdom to learn. High levels of accountability, of discipline of the hard work of loving you and loving people and being honest and surrendering ourselves to wearing one face. Would you please teach us your wisdom right now to love as you loved, innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent. Lord, for the person that thinks that the agenda of Satan and the allurements and the temptations of sin are somehow kind and benevolent. Would you open up their eyes? That which is bitter is not sweet. Darkness cannot be substituted for light. Good is not bad and bad is not good. Teach us what it means to overcome evil with good. Thank you so much, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.